1 Timothy 3, 8-13, and Romans 16, 1-2. Let's give our attentive listening to the reading of God's holy word. Deacons, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling your people to worship, to sing, to confess all that you are to us, and now to hear your word. God, would you open up our uh, spiritual ears and eyes uh, to see and hear you, and, and let your word uh, shape us according to your likeness, according to the likeness of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. So we're continuing in our series in pursuit of a healthy church. And since last week, we've been looking at the healthy governing structures of the church, starting with the office of the elders. And today, uh, we're looking at the office of the deacons. And just as a recap, generally speaking, the office of the elders are there to meet the spiritual needs of the church through preaching, teaching, leading worship, prayer, and counsel, while the office of the deacons are there to meet the more physical material needs of the church through mercy ministry, inside, outside the church, missional work, outreach for the city, caring for the physical needs of our members, and taking care of the physical facility of the church itself. Now, do some of their duties overlap? Of course. Uh, but there is a general differentiation of the duties and responsibilities for the two offices so that they can both be done well and effectively as God intended us to. Structurally, this means you have elders who are elected to be overseers of the whole church, particularly in the matters of worship and teaching, and deacons in submission to that teaching um, would go about meeting the practical needs of the church and they would spearhead the missional work of the church so that the rest of the congregation will follow suit. One way to summarize this, I've heard another pastor put it this way, elders generally serve by leading the church, and deacons generally lead by serving the church. Okay? Elders serve by leading, deacons lead by serving. And we are absolutely at a point in our ministry uh, where we need our members to serve as deacons who lead by serving. So it'd be important for us to really understand what the qualifications are for the deacons, and that's what we'll get into first. And then secondly, what I would like to address for us is this biblical discussion slash debate surrounding uh, women deacons and where our position is on that as we move forward as the church. Um, so two big points, okay? What are the qualifications for deacons? 
and what are our views on women deacons. All right, let's start with the qualification for deacons we find in our passage in 1 Timothy 3. First, in verse 8, it says, deacons likewise. And the word likewise is pointing us back to what just came before this passage, which was about the qualifications for the office of the elders, right? And so Paul is deliberately tying this in with that passage, saying likewise, so that it's clear this is also an official role of the church. And it comes with its respective qualifications. So elders are officers. Likewise, deacons are officers. And therefore, verse 8, must be, first of all, dignified. And that means worthy of respect. Now, how would they know someone is worthy of respect? Uh, can you really know someone is worthy of respect by looking at someone's uh, LinkedIn profile or their resume? Not really, right? Um, you would have to know this person from within your own congregation. And that's why in, ver- in, in Acts chapter 6, when the office of the deacons is first instituted, the apostle says, choose from among yourselves seven men who are qualified to be deacons. The apostles didn't choose. The apostles didn't choose seven men. The congregation chose for themselves deacons. So the office of the deacon, the diaconate in other words, is an office to be insourced through our own membership from, from among the brothers we know who are worthy of respect, who are dignified, not, not to be outsourced, not to bring in some outside professional to do uh, the work of deacons. And he goes on to say uh, they're to be not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Okay. To not be double-tongued uh, means to not be a hypocritical person who lives one way over here and another way over there, and, and also someone who has self-control over his speech, who's careful with, with his words. I would say it's someone who's actually a very good listener, and that's com- that comes with being careful with one's speech. You listen well. You're not a gossiper. You're not a slanderer. You're someone that people can confide in and trust in. Not addicted to much wine means he's also self-controlled in that manner. And in the, in the New Testament, it, it's often coupled with being filled with the Holy Spirit. Not being drunk on wine, but being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that indicates someone who is um, humble in submitting to God, not prideful, not um, always advancing his own agenda. Um, he's filled with the Spirit. So it, it's as if he was so full of the Spirit, he can't be full of himself. That's how humble uh, he is. Not greedy for dishonest gain, right? Not someone who lives for money and profit um, and displays rather this generous giving spirit, has a self-giving sacrificial approach to life, right? And generosity also comes in different currencies, right? There's generosity with money, but also with one's time, one's energy. So these are members of the church who clearly give a lot of their time, energy, money to the church without demanding a certain material return. They do so out of joy, out of their love for God and their love for uh, the church. It's very much like Christ, who, whose mission in life was to come and, and serve rather than to be served. And even though he was God, he took upon himself the form of a bondservant right, and became last. So deacons are to model this Christ-like servanthood for the church as well. And then verse 9 adds, 
they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Mystery of the faith usually refers to the, the doctrines and teachings of the apostles. And holding to it with a clear conscience probably means to hold, hold to it genuinely and wholeheartedly, um, not just in word, but also in deed. And, and not in this stagnant kind of way, but growing in their understanding of the gospel, of the doctrines of the church, so they continue to hold it as a beautiful mystery. It's a beautiful mystery of the faith. It's not just data or information. So these are essentially men who, therefore, continue in their discipleship in the word. And it's important for deacons to be well-rounded in that sense. They're not just busy bodies in the church. Um, they have a lot of instances where they have to apply scripture in the very context they're, they're serving, even materially and physically in. They may have to offer advice that's biblical, uh, words of comfort, that's biblical. So deacons also must be uh, equipped with scripture as well. Verse 10 also adds this very important standard. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So here Paul is infusing into the, the process of electing deacons the step of testing them first. And the word test implies training and improving to be ready to serve in that capacity. So it's not just a matter of members um, nominating, like we talked about last week, nominating and then um, voting. But in between that, there's a season of training and, and equipping. And if they complete that, if they prove themselves to be um, uh, true to the faith and holding to the mystery of the faith, they do display a spirit of generosity, then they will be recommended to, to be voted in. In most cases, if not all cases, for the deacons, training is intensive for a period and ongoing for a lifetime, as long as they're serving as deacons. It's intensive for a period, continuous thereafter. And, and that's how you keep the office of the deacons continually worthy of trust, because they're continually held accountable. They're not given these sort of uh, uh, unaccounted uh, lifelong appointments but they, they must continue to be taught, equipped, and trained, and held accountable. And then, if we jump down to verse 12, and we'll come back to verse 11 in a bit. Verse 12, it says, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household well. And that's similar language as what we heard in the qualifications for the elders, right? So there's a similar consistency asked of deacons to have a certain seamless connection between their godliness at home and godliness at church. Otherwise, you really won't be able to serve with confidence. So verse 13 says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, So you do operate with good standing and great confidence as a result of bringing your personal faith in Christ in your personal life over to your ministry in the church. That's also very important. All right. I'll summarize it this way. Uh, I will use three C's to summarize the qualifications of deacons. First C is calling. You need to be called. You can't nominate yourself. Uh, you are to be nominated by your fellow members and they vote you in. You must be called. Second, second C is competency. Uh, men who are qualified to be deacons should be tested and even after being tested, remain in discipleship so that they will always prove themselves to be trustworthy and respectable. Third C would be very related to that character. Um, men who are qualified to be identified as such by the members uh, of the church who know them and their character must 
look on their character and, and not just are they capable, uh, are, they, are they efficient, do they get things done? Well, we want things to be done, but more than that, we want men of good character uh, to be in the office of deacons. Calling, competency, and character. These are the essential qualifications of the deacons. All right? Now, to this other point or question um, as to whether women can serve as deaconess uh, in the office of the deacon, let me explain the debate a bit first and then address where we stand on that, okay? Um, Last week, I mentioned briefly that there's a debate among Bible-believing Christians, right, beyond our denomination about whether women can be pastors, women can be elders, right? Pretty much the same debate exists when it comes to the office of the deacons because they're both offices. Elders and deacons are ordained offices. And so if if one is open to uh, female ordination, then the other should be as well. So um, here's how I want to do this. Since this is a hot topic and a controversial issue, I do want to zoom out a bit and address this a bit more from a bird's eye view. Okay, Give you some context into how we theologize around this, okay? Um, Like the debate surrounding the office of the elders, ultimately, it comes down to one's interpretive method of scripture. Interpretive method of scripture. Those who take the more egalitarian view, when they look at passages in the Bible that says women are to hold a, women are not to hold a position of authority over men in the church, they read that as a culture and time-specific instruction. Um, meaning it's, it's relevant to that time when that letter was written. And since we are not part of that culture and time, these instructions are not as relevant to us. And we in the Reformed tradition, and especially in the PCA, find that to be not the best way to read the Bible. We would respectfully disagree that that's how we should interpret those passages. Because if you say that about one text, uh, you can say that about pretty much any text uh, in the Bible. You can say that being saved by faith alone in Christ alone was specific to that culture and time, not to our pluralistic society. Uh, It's hard to see how you can logically take one text and say that's culturally limited and confined and then look at another text and say that's timelessly relevant for all times. Unless, of course, scripture itself says something is expired. Um, We don't want to put an expiration date on anything. And that's really why we hold to what scripture says about the office of the elders and deacons, uh, it's because we want to read scripture faithfully. Um, This also gets to the issue of the doctrine of sufficiency, sufficiency of scripture. Is scripture sufficient to guide us for all times? Or is scripture something that we need to upgrade now and then? Uh, Do we need to give the apostles and their teachings an update? For example, if Paul had written what he wrote only because it was pertinent to his culture, that implies he was, in a sense, caving to his cultural needs and pressures. And he didn't quite break out of his cultural mold uh, and, and, and confinements with godly courage. And, well, we know better now, and so we should rise above Paul. Uh, and if that's our understanding of Paul... He was just a product of his own culture. That seriously brings into question everything else he's written, doesn't it? It raises another question for us. 
Is this also why Jesus picked 12 men to be his apostles? Was Jesus also caving to his culture when he established the 12? What happens then is Jesus and the scriptures are not the standard by which we judge our culture. Our culture is the standard by which we judge Jesus and his words. And depending on which path you take, you can eventually, which interpretive method you take, you can eventually end up with two very different looking faiths. And I won't go as far as to say that uh, the denom- all the denominations that ordain women are, are not part of the, the, the Protestant church or the Orthodox church. They are. Many of them are. They're faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. But we want to be cautious. And, and that's why we are who we are, the PCA, because we have this sort of cautious radar constantly going off with issues like this because it doesn't just pertain to that office, but how we read scripture. Um, that's what we're trying to pursue. Uh, and embracing at the same time the fact that truth often offends our culture because it transcends our culture. If a religion aligns with your cultural preferences in every way, that's not a true religion. That's the figment of your cultural imaginations. So it's scripture that keeps us fixed on the truth. And interestingly, as we do that, it's actually how we avoid falling into either extremes of our cultures. We do culture better when we hold on to scripture. For example, the, the two extreme positions to look out for in our culture today are uh, sort of extreme egalitarianism and extreme traditionalism, right? Um, and the extreme egalitarianism over here would say all the lines between the genders can be blurred. Okay. Uh, how dare you say a woman can't be a man or a man can't be a woman? It blurs the line between the, the genders to the point of eliminating the line entirely. On the other hand, you have extreme traditionalism that says, how dare you suggest that women can do anything other than a, a housewife? Um, it draws too thick of a line between the genders. For one side, the lines are too blurred. For the other side, the lines are too thick. The problem is if you put either put on either of these cultural lenses and look at scripture or actually anything, you just become a cultural extremist. And your ethics will be too blurred when, when you need more of a thick line, too thick of a line when you need more of a blurred line. Uh, even if you were to read the Bible, uh, you read it through the cultural lens and read your culture into it, and, and your religion will, will become biased and lose credibility because it seems to the other side you're only using the Bible to say what you want it to say. What's the solution here then? I think as we hold fast to scriptural truth, we have to understand that it's okay and it's actually quite comforting to see how we are bound to offend a bit of both sides. To the egalitarians, we seem a little too conservative. To the traditionalists, we seem a bit too progressive. And I think that's the right way to do it. I think that's the right consequence of holding on to scriptural truth that does transcend and naturally at times offend culture. I think we need to seek to put on a thoroughly scriptural lens and and follow where that leads us. Avoid both the errors of extreme egalitarianism, extreme traditionalism. 
We want to be thoroughly biblical and not swerve to the left or, or to the right. And that's how we want to approach this issue about uh, officers in the church and the roles of men and women in the church. Now, having said that, I, I also want to emphasize, as I did last time, we're only talking about positions of authority in the church, elders and deacons. And this says nothing of the authority that women can and I hope will hold more of in society in general, whether it's political authority, right? whether it's a female politician or female police officer, female school principal, female dentist, neurologist, professors, seminary professors, counselors. I submit to all of these authorities uh, currently, actually, and they're perfectly biblical um, for them to hold these positions of authority in society. But in God's providence and wisdom, he has set apart certain men, not all men, certain men to be elders of the church and deacons of the church. And elders are those who do kind of quality control in the church when it comes to doctrine and membership. Um, there are difficult times when an elder must say to a member, you're doing something that's harmful to the church, something destructive, and you must desist or, or you will have to leave the church. That level of oversight, that kind of confrontation, God has left to male uh, elders to perform. And likewise, when it comes to office of the deacons, they are to be the ones leading and laying the foundation, the groundwork of churches, missions, uh, mercy ministry, and outreach, and the rest of the church is to, to follow suit. Is any of this because women are inherently unfit for leadership? No. Uh, the only thing we conclude from this is that God intended certain men for this particular kind of leadership in the church. Um, but to say that that's because somehow women are inherently less fit to, to, to lead or inferior, that's like saying the Son of God is less fit to lead or inferior because he submits to the Father. The Father doesn't submit to the Son. The Son submits to the Father. Um, they're equal in their dignity, in their value, in their capabilities, but they have distinct roles. They have distinct roles. And, and just as the son's submission to the father is given, not taken, uh, so is your submission to the elders and the deacons. They are not things that can be taken from you. No one should take that from you, but they're freely given by you. All right. So I wanted to give you that context to our theology because this is such a controversial issue um, to to explain this a bit a bit more um, holistically. And that leaves us with this question of, um, right, what do we do about uh, women and their interaction with the diaconate? And currently, there is a debate in the PCA about this. There's no debate as to whether um, uh, who can be uh, officers in the church. PCA has agreed on that. But there is a debate, I think pretty robust debate, around um, whether... Women can serve alongside deacons, male deacons, as deaconesses, unordained but commissioned deaconesses, right? Just operating with that title and with that kind of equipping and deployment in the church. Um, it's a 50-50 split in the PCA, all right? Uh, one side is opposed to commissioning, not ordaining uh, deaconesses, and the other side is in favor of commissioning um, women deaconesses. Here's where we are headed. We are headed where NCA has been heading for quite some time now uh, before EM even existed. And that is commissioning, not ordaining uh, women to serve in the church alongside our deacons. They are called chipsa and kwansa in Korean. 
These are women who have been commissioned to work alongside our ordained elders and deacons uh, to support the work of the diaconate primarily. And they have been absolutely essential to the existence of NCA. We would not be here if it wasn't for them and their help. We're going to follow suit. And, and when we get to the point where we ordain our first uh, male deacons, when we ordain them from within our EM, uh, we will also hopefully, Lord willing, commission sisters to be likewise nominated, trained, and elected, um, voted in to be commissioned, not ordained, commissioned deaconesses in the church. And it's not because, oh, KM is doing it and EM just has to follow. We believe this is biblical. Uh, I think the strongest case for this is actually found in our passage today in verse 11. Verse 11 says, Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. I think this is the most convincing case for commissioning deaconesses in the church. Paul gave Timothy just earlier, the qualifications for elders in the same chapter. And now he's giving the qualifications for deacons. However, right in the middle middle of the description of deacons, it says, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Question, why are these women being screened for their character? And if the answer is, well, since the office of the deacon is so important, it's important to examine their wives, well, then why wasn't a similar standard of evaluation given to elders' wives? Nothing is set for the elders' wives. If anything, the screening process for the elders' wives should be stricter than the deacons' wives. But there's silence on that. So why? Why are the wives of the deacons examined but not the wives of the elders? The most probable explanation is that the deacons' wives were being screened to be appointed to the diaconal work alongside their husbands who will become deacons. They're being screened and commissioned to function as deaconesses to support and work side by side with the ordained deacons. We also just read in Romans 16, verse 1, Phoebe is identified as a servant in the ESV translation. And we, we like using the ESV translation, but like all translations, it's not a perfect translation. And this is a case where I sorta, kinda, tiny little bit disagree with how the ESV translated this. Um, they translated a servant, which is the Greek word diakonon, the word for deacon. The NIV, therefore, in, printed in your bulletin, says, our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centria. Right. So, so Phoebe was not just a deaconess, but an exemplary one that Paul mentions here for all the men and women in the church in Rome to emulate. And it may have been that she was more active in that role because there were just not enough men who were stepping up and serving. So she rose to the occasion. You also see women like Tabitha in Acts chapter 9 who are devoted to the work of serving the poor and the widows, which is essentially the duty of the deacons. Paul's own description of women helping those in trouble in 1 Timothy 5. Uh, There's a strong biblical case for commissioning uh, deaconesses in the Bible. This is also the reform view of many theologians like John Calvin. John Calvin went as far as to actually being in favor of ordaining 
uh, deaconesses. B.B. Warfield, John Frame, Edmund Clowney. This is a thoroughly reformed view within our own tradition. Right? Uh, and, and, and I say that for those of you who may be thinking uh, uh, this may be heading towards some kind of a progressive slippery slope, I assure you we're not. And at the same time, like I said earlier, it's okay to, to offend a little, whether that's traditionalism or egalitarianism. All this to say, what is this about? All this to say, sisters, we need you. The church needs you desperately. There's so much more, so much in the Bible that speaks to what you can do. Let's focus on that. And, and please know that, that God is calling you to join in the work of the church by growing in your discipleship, in your service, so that you can be our Phoebe, our Tabitha. So sisters, aspire to be such women, honorable, respectable women. Be our tested and trustworthy deaconesses. Uh, get equipped with us and discipled with us and begin to help us in ministering in areas where we really need women to minister to. Help us to minister women to women who are at risk, to women who, who've been victims of abuse, uh, women who are struggling with unexpected pregnancies, or women who are recovering from an abortion, miscarriages, women who struggle with addiction, uh, women with mental disabilities, women with trauma, women with anxiety, Women who need pastoral counsel, but, but also need another sister to be there with them. Women who, who need women to confide in and pray with. If we are to be a healthy church, uh, we need our sisters involved. If the church is to rise up, our sisters must rise up. So must our brothers We need deacons who are ordained to the office of the diaconate, and we need deaconesses who are commissioned to come alongside and support us. In closing, let me end on this note. Um, at the end of the day, the reason why we want to pursue this, guys, is not because we're here to prop up godly men and women to admire. Uh, we're not aiming at uh, idolizing human heroes. Right? No. At the end of the day, the reason we want to pursue this is because we're here to worship Jesus, and Jesus is the ultimate servant of all. He served us first, selflessly, sacrificially, and we are going to be forever in his care, and so let's glorify him by caring for one another in a way that pleases him. Let's wash the feet of others. Um, let's become last, even though we may have the right to be first. Uh, do all things for the glory and pleasure of your heavenly Father who sees all things even when you're not being seen by others. Let's serve and care as, as Christ served and cared for us. That's why we're pursuing this, uh, for the glory and pleasure of God. Let's remember that as we pursue this goal of becoming a more healthy church. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you. We thank you for uh, your word that guides us uh, in, in establishing healthy structures in the church according to your design and your will. And 
Lord, as we try to obey you and follow you, God, would you give us the, the wisdom on the one hand to understand and courage on the other hand to implement and help us to fix our eyes truly on you alone so that our agenda is not to appease uh, man, uh, but to please our God um, and to glorify our maker. Uh, Lord, let that be our, our heart's true desire. And Lord, help us. And, and I pray you especially encourage our sisters um, to rise up for the sake of your kingdom, the sake of the church. Uh, Lord, we, we need them. You know that we need them. Uh, we need the way they image you in a way that brothers can't. Uh, Lord, encourage them, empower them to step into equipping and discipleship so that, Lord, they will begin to minister in all the glorious ways that you desire them to. And, Lord, may our church be supportive of them, encourage them, bless them, provide all that they need in order to make that happen. Uh, help us to be such a church. We pray all these things in your Son's beautiful, merciful name. Amen.